We are going to go, uh, we're in a series in Ephesians, we're going to go in Genesis, and then we'll land in Ephesians in a little bit. Now, we have these blue Bibles that are somewhere. Did you take it? You, oh, you grabbed it on the way in? Oh, man. All right, well, I need, I need one. All right, well, this young lady needs one right here. Because I took hers. All right, now listen, we have these blue ones. The reason we hand these out is because Jesus loves you more if you actually open the Bible as opposed to following along on the screen, okay? I'm kidding when I say that partially. Um, uh, if you need one, grab one. If you do not have a Bible, um, please take this one home because we'd love for you to have it. We're going to go to Genesis 1, verse 1 on page 1. Now, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, if you are new to the Bible, is a letter written by a man named Paul to a community in a city called Ephesus. Uh, This was mid-first century or so. And Paul is writing to churches that he himself has started. And these churches... Uh, are usually, they usually meet in houses. I mean, they're not like churches we would think of at all today. These are small house churches, 20, 30, 40 people, tops. And these letters were meant to be read aloud all in one sitting. And so when we break up letters uh, and scripture into little bite-sized chunks, we kind of miss the flow of the thing. And I just want to remind us that this particular letter is divided into two parts. The first part, Paul spends three chapters. He doesn't give us one command except to remember. And literally three chapters of here's what Jesus has done. Here's what it means to be in Christ. His favorite designation of disciples of Jesus are those in Christ. And literally three chapters, you are blessed, you are adopted, you are chosen, you are loved. I mean, epic sorts of things. And then in chapter four, the whole book pivots where Paul says, live up to what you've already received. And you have to understand the invitation of Christ and followership of Jesus isn't do this so you can be this. It is always, you are this, now live up to it. It's literally, the invitation is to become who you already are. So in the same way, I was declared a husband when I married my wife. The goal is now to become what's already true of me, because I didn't really have an understanding of what it meant to be a husband when I was declared a husband, and yet I was, in reality, a husband. And so the rest of my married life is to learn to be what's already true. For those of you that are parents, the same analogy applies. So that's gospel. It's not moralism. It's not religiousness. It's not philosophy. It is, here's what Jesus has done. Here's what you must do. So we're looking at different parts of the identity that Jesus has bestowed upon those of us in him. And then the invitation in the second half of the book is to live that. Live what's already true of you. Paul later will say, put off what belongs to your old self. Put on what belongs to your new self. Because there's a new self that has been birthed right in the middle of the old one. So we're going to look at one very specific word that Paul uses. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, regardless of how you think he did that, those are very important questions, whether you think the earth is 4,000 years old or millions of years old or billions of years old. Those are fine and important questions. The Bible insists, though, however he did it, that he did it. (laughs) Right? The, The universe isn't the product of randomness and chance, but design and intelligence. And there's an interesting word that's used. When God created the world, 
The word created is the Hebrew word bara. Okay, say it with me, bara. Now, that's really like weak because you kind of got to gurgle it right at the end. Am I right? Am I right, DeVries? You got to bra. Um, but we'll just say it nice and anglicized, bara. Now, bara, the word, this word is used only of God's creation. It's never used when human beings create things. That word is never used. It's only used when God creates something. It is God's raw, magnificent, explosive power. Genesis 1 goes on to say, God just speaks, let there be light, and there was light. Right? I mean, he literally just speaks the universe into existence. The difference between human creators and the divine creator, human creators can only create using materials that are already here. Now, brother, I just want to say thank you. But do you see that only a calf the same size, a calf muscle the same size of that block of wood could have held that TV up the way that I did? I just want to tell you that right now. Now, thank you very much. We don't claim to be better than other churches. We just claim to be better looking. Uh, and that isn't, no, I'm teasing. If you're new, I don't believe that. Although I threaten to preach without my shirt on every now and again just to see, just to hold the attention of the feminine audience. Now, the difference between human creators and the divine creators is that human creators can only create using pre existing materials, right? Whereas the divine creator creates out of nothing. So, literally, into a void, God spoke. And to nothing, he brought something. Now, the word bara then is, is the explosive, majestic power of God to create. And it's used of the universe. It's also used of humanity. Go to chapter 27. Oh, uh, verse 27, hello, of chapter 1. Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Three times, one verse, same word, Barah. The word that's only used when God creates something. It could be explained with any reference to humanity. This word is not used. So, two things right out of the gate uh, are, are described to be the product of God in this way. The universe, the created order, and then human beings made in the image of God. Interestingly enough, that the, the basis for the commands against murder and slander later on in the Bible are based on the fact that we're image bearers. In other words, if you want to take an artist and to hurt an artist, you would defame their art, right? That's one of the ways you could do that. And so by slandering and murdering, the scriptures later will argue, by slandering and murdering other image bearers created in the image of God, you are, it's an affront and an offense to the creator because you're slandering or you're killing like pieces of art. I mean, that's the image that's given. Because we're all image bearers of this God, anything that you do against another human person is an affront to the creator. That's the idea. Now, there's another word that's used in Romans chapter 1 for God's creation. That's in the New Testament. Flip over to the right. Romans chapter 1, if you have a blue Bible, page number 911. 
If you don't have a blue Bible, good luck. Romans chapter 1. We're going to go to verse 20. Paul is speaking about how none of us are born atheists, that that all of us have an intuitive sense that there's something bigger than us, that there's something behind the world that we see. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. You guys there? She's helping you? Nice. Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, you can learn about God from looking outside your window. That there are aspects of his character that creation tells us about, but there's an interesting word that's used. Uh, Beneath the phrase, uh, being understood from what has been made. That phrase, from what has been made. That is the, the Greek word poema. Some of you have heard this word before because it clearly uh, is a word that we use to get the word poem or the word poetic, right? Poema is another word that's used when God creates something, but it was also used of human creation too. Poema has a bit more of an artistic feel to it. So bara is God's kind of raw, unfiltered, majestic, authoritative power that just spoke the universe into existence. Whereas poema has, the, has a bit of a connotation of like a fine artist or, or sculpting or delicate like, like nuance to it. And so the same, this, this bara concept applied to the universe and applied to uh, humanity is now matched with a concept called poema. Used of the universe, but also used of humanity in a very certain sense. Go if you would to Ephesians chapter Now, if you're wondering, will this make sense at some point? I'm unsure. In my head, it makes perfect sense. Whether I can work that out, I I do not know. Ephesians chapter 1, or 2. Hello. Brothers and sisters, can we talk about the Buckeyes for a second? Can we talk about the spiritual warfare going on around my boy Jim Jim Trestle? Who is unjustly accused? Oh, yes. Come on. Oh, bring it. Okay. All right. I got that off my chest. Now, if you're new and you're wondering, really, Ohio State football in the middle of a a message from the Bible? Yes. Those things go together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, this is one of, like, if you're new to the Bible... This is one of those long passages where you go, I know it sounds really important, but I have the foggiest idea what he's saying. So if you're feeling like that, that's okay. But it turns out to be this section is one of the most uh, amazing declarations of what Jesus does when you give your life to him. And this word poema is used right at the very end of this section. And so I want to give you context. All we've done thus far has just been background. Bara, God's creative power, right? Spoken over the universe and humans made in his image. Poema, used also of the universe and now used of disciples of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, You used to be dead in your transgressions and your sins. You were enslaved, in other words. 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by working, so that nobody can boast. We are God's handiwork. Now that word turns out to be poema. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now that, would you agree, is a mouthful. The point he's making is this. When he uses the image of us being dead, what he means is literally trapped, encapsulated, and and disabled because of the sin that is in our heart, the sin that is in our world, uh, the sin that literally enslaves us. And he says, but God is rich in mercy. Scott, I love you. Because God is rich in mercy, he, as an act of grace, made us alive in Christ. And that gift is received through faith. We don't work to earn it. We don't strive to get it. It is a gift of God received by faith. And notice what happens. It makes us alive. But then Paul says, though we are not saved by works, we are saved for works. Right? We're not saved working our way to God as though God was interested in founding a religion. We receive what God has already done, and as receivers of His grace, we then are freed to work. So we're not saved by works, we're saved for them. And notice, Paul ties this idea of you working into the idea that you are now poema. So, the raw, the majestic, raw, unfiltered power of God speaks the universe into existence, hallelujah, and speaks the imprint of His image on every single human person. And then we read in Romans this other word, poema, this this bit of an artistic nuance, this fine sculpting that takes place. Well, that's also used of the world, and now it's used of redeemed humanity, That literally is an act of power and grace. God fine-tunes you, sculpts you into somebody for whom He has work. He doesn't just zap us into heaven when we come to faith in Him. We actually have stuff to do. We get to participate with Him in the renewal and the restoration of the work that He began, began in Jesus and continues to this day. That's why we're so fired up. That the people up on stage aren't the ministers. The whole crew of us are ministers. It's not just the missionaries that are overseas that are missionaries. Every single person who's a disciple of Jesus is a missionary. Like literally there's work to do. And this, by the way, has nothing to do with you feeling better about yourself. This isn't a self-esteem thing. This is how amazing God is. Right? Because God takes what was dead and makes it alive. 
And then he sculpts it to do work that he himself has planned for us to do. Now, to understand a bit of this, I want to introduce you to Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians. Ephesus, in the first century when Paul writes, was the world center of Artemis worship. Artemis was the combination of two other goddesses, Diana and Kibbola, just in case you're keeping score at home. And evidently, uh, Diana was the goddess of small animals and the goddess of the hunt. So as the protector of small animals and the protector and blesser of the hunt, there, there was a bit of a contradiction there. Would you agree? I mean, just for those of you. Now, this is Artemis, and she's a beauty. Yep, she's awesome. Now, those, those are breasts or those are eggs, and we're not quite sure which they're meant to be, but fertility is kind of the deal here. Next. There she is with a bit of a tan. Next. Now, stop right here. If you've ever been to Ephesus, this is one of the major remains of Ephesus, one of the major roads. Nope, go back if you would. One more. Matty Ice. There we go. Okay, you see that statue right there on the, on the bottom towards the middle? So you had all of these columns, and on those columns were big statues that were gods and goddesses. Uh, in fact, there's a, you can read about it in Acts 19, I believe, where Paul, there's a riot being thrown in Ephesus because Paul comes in and preaches this Jesus and people are coming to faith in Jesus and there's, there's a silversmith who makes images of Artemis. Artemis, Ephesus was the center of Artemis worship. The temple, the Artemisian, dedicated to the worship of this goddess was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Everywhere there was, everywhere you went in Ephesus, there was art. There were sculptures. There were paintings and reliefs. And Artemis was central to that. So you'd walk down this road and you would see statues of gods and goddesses, famous citizens next. And there's the road again, next. So an example of the kind, so there's a coin with Artemis on it. You can go ahead and turn that off. Here's the point. When Paul would have written this to a little bitty house church in Ephesus, they were surrounded by people who made art, people who made art of the gods. But Paul says, the one true God makes art out of people. And do you see the difference? That people in Ephesus made art of the gods. But our God makes art of people. He takes what was ugly and what was tainted and what was fallen and what was dead. And in the same way he's crafted the world around us, he crafts them for good works which God had planned in advance for us to do. Do you get a glimpse of how subversive this would have felt in the first century to go, really? Really? We are works of art? Some translations have masterpiece, some have translations of God's workmanship, God's handiwork. But the declaration that we are poema in Christ is a big deal. Go to 2 Corinthians, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
I want to talk just a second about how this works. Now, are you guys tracking so far? Mmm, that was very unaffirming. Barah! Spoken over the universe, spoken over humans made in God's image. Poema, spoken over the universe and spoken over redeemed humanity. Now, how this works, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. For merely human eyes, Paul says, we don't, we've ceased regarding people from just that perspective. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. Now, in Greek, there are some English words. Keep that up there, if you would. So, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The if isn't there. Um, and, and the sentence literally reads, therefore, in Christ, and then here's the kicker, creation. The rest is implied, but it literally reads like this. Therefore, in Christ, creation. And the word that's used for creation is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word bara. Now, do you understand what Paul has just said? The same voice that spoke the universe into existence now speaks every time someone undergoes a new birth in Christ. God is still in the creating business. Literally, if anyone is in Christ, creation. The same voice that said, let there be light, now says, let there be newness. The old has gone and the new is here, is what he says. So, and, and I need to know this, brothers and sisters. When I look at the world, I am in awe of the Grand Canyon, of Yosemite, of the wonders of God and the splendors. And I don't have any trouble imagining that such a God could create something like that. I do have trouble imagining that God could redeem someone like me. Because when I look at my life, well, I'm still fallen, I'm still tainted, I'm still screwed up, I still got issues. And what the scriptures declare, if anyone is in Christ, creation, it's only that which God can do, Barah, he created the world, he imprinted humanity, and now he turns us into poema as a simple declaration of his power that is independent of my performance that day. It has nothing to do with whether or not I had a good day or I've had a good week. I mean, if you're looking at somebody who's five months sober, the best news ever is that God looks at you and says, Barah. And a new creation is born right in the midst of fallenness and weakness and brokenness and sin. See, this has nothing to do with how great we are. It has everything to do with how merciful and awesome He is. He, Paul ties the power that created this incredible world to the same power that speaks new creation over you in Christ. And it has nothing to do with how great you did last week. So we sit 
as people who have a track record a mile long of all the ways we've been selfish and petty and prideful and lustful, all the ways we've been greedy and jealous and envious of others, all the ways that we've celebrated our own accomplishments too much and we've celebrated in the downfall of others, all of the ways that we've lied and stolen and cheated, all of the ways that we have robbed God of the honor and the thanksgiving due Him. That list is a mile long. And I keep adding to it. And yet what the Scripture insists, not as a matter of cliche, not as a matter of self-esteem, is that what Jesus has birthed in you is new. And it's not of you. Barah is the the word that's only used of God's work. So you can't get credit. And brothers and sisters, that's the invitation of Jesus. Does He forgive our sins? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Ticket to heaven, sure. If anyone is in Christ, creation. The old has gone and the new is here. How do you hear that when you're five months sober? How do, how do you hear that if you had an abortion previously? How do you hear that if you're on your third marriage? How do you hear that when you've been called failure or screw up? See, this has nothing to do with how great we are. The grace and mercy of Jesus results in literally Him recreating all the time. He's in the recreation business, brothers and sisters. You have to understand, if you can go out to the Grand Canyon and go, my word, this is amazing. The idea is that there is that sort of thing in you, being birthed. That's why Jesus will come across a religious leader and they'll say, well, yeah, you got to be born again. And the religious leader's going, well, tough for me as an adult man to crawl back in my mother's womb. That would be awkward and a bit inappropriate, it seems like. And Jesus goes, no, nah, I'm talking about being born from above, being born of God. So every, whenever you hear the phrase born again, I mean, it's got a bit of a fundamentalist undertone in our world today, but it is a very profound reality that Jesus teaches and that Paul reinforces. If anyone in Christ, creation, end of story. That's the invitation of Jesus. It's not a religious system. It's not a set of morals or philosophy. It literally is a new reality where as an act of the same power that spoke the universe into existence now speaks over you. Newness and renewal and restoration. Do you see why this was such good news? Instead of crafting God in our own image, right? this is a God who turns people who were dead who turns people who are screw-ups, who turns people who are misfits and outcasts, and people who are just colossal sinners, into poema. And he does it as an act of grace. If you are here and you think following Jesus means you get religion, and you all of a sudden got to do all this stuff, you have so missed it. And I'm sorry, very often the church screws this up. Very often the church communicates, you got to get it fixed first. You got to get cleaned up first. You got to get religion first. I'm telling you, Paul says, while you were dead in your transgressions, Jesus made you alive. And so saying yes to him has nothing to do with him turning you into a religious person. He is birthing something new. 
Now think about how we hear this. The old is gone, the new has come. I mean, do you buy that? Do you buy it? He says non-rhetorically. I mean, I know I was preaching a little bit there, but we can now be friends again. Do you buy it? No, you don't. I think the vast majority of us don't buy it at all. And how do I know that? Because when I describe myself, when I think of myself, all the things that come first and foremost to my mind are not words like handiwork, art, you know, poem. I mean, words like screw up, good looking. I mean, that wasn't, you know, screw up, sinner, failure, hypocrite. Those are the words that keep coming up. And we have these little voices in our heads. And our enemy just energizes those little voices in our heads that remind me of all of the things I've done that have caused me to not be worthy of God's grace. And so Paul speaks a word over us today. If anyone in Christ, creation, the old is gone, the new has come. And the invitation now is to live in that newness. Paul himself will later say, put off your old self. That's literally out of character now. And put on your new self. There is a new self being birthed. So uh, would you do this? Would you close your eyes for a moment? I just want to ask you a couple of questions. So when it says the old has gone, what are some places of the old, some things of the old that your attention keeps going back to? Some huge mistake, some huge sin, some huge failure. And perhaps just in, in these moments, we need to be reminded those things no longer us. They were true of us once, but they're no longer the basis for our fundamental identity And perhaps for some of us, this just washes right over. Just like, okay, fine, heard it, it's fine. Maybe for you, just asking that God would bring you to the place where your jaw would drop in awe and wonder at the thought that God has recreated you. And that all the garbage and the junk and the sin and the failure all that's gone. There's new that has come that you've barely tasted. Maybe your prayer this morning is just, God, show me what it means to walk in newness.